The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the, your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priests forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from the brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Hi, I'm Mim. Um, the second reading tonight comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 11 to 44, which can be found on page 1004 of the Pew Bibles. So that's Mark chapter 12, starting from verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew the hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, the first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the men replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls, himself, calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. 
As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Thanks, team. G'day, I'm Roger. Thank you for being here at Church in the Graveyard tonight. We're cracking through the Gospel of Mark. If you're a visitor, we've been doing this since October, working through from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, where Mark gives away the story. The Gospel is about Jesus, the Christ. That's the opening sentence of Mark chapter 1. And we're heading through to Easter Day, Easter Sunday, where we'll reach Mark chapter 16 as Jesus rises from the dead and his disciples are filled with fear. But today, uh, Mark 12, uh, to bring you up to speed, last week, Mark uh, 11 through the front end of chapter 12 was in and out Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. If you think of Mark as a timeline, chapters 1 to 8, Jesus kind of doing circle work in Galilee in his hometown. uh, And when he's recognised as the Christ that we've known all along from 1 verse 1, God's promised king who saves, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. And he makes very, very clear, explicit, that he's going to suffer, be rejected, die and rise again in Jerusalem. 8.31, 9.31, 10.32 in Mark. It's really obvious that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. It's his plan as a ransom for sin. And in chapter 11, Jesus actually arrives. It's a bit of an in and out, an in and out as he gets into Jerusalem. As Andrew described it last week, a bit of biblical horticulture. As Jesus curses the fig tree and then goes into Jerusalem, the fig tree withers. It's a metaphor for how Jerusalem itself will wither and die. The temple itself is going to come to an end. The temple, the place where God meets his people, where you can come to meet God, where you can have a sacrifice paid for your sin where you can hear the very words of God and be reminded that you are his people, that temple will crumble and wither and die and be replaced with Jesus himself. Jesus is the new temple. That's chapter 11. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem and uh, tonight, as we look at chapter 12, it's all about the authority of Jesus, his authoritative words. I'm going to pray for us now that uh, God will speak to us as we look at his word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you've spoken to us in your word and through your son. Uh, we pray tonight as we, as we look at Jesus and his words again, uh, that you would help us to see him more clearly and in seeing him to know you. Uh, we pray this, that we might respond rightly to you. Amen. Now let me tell you about Craig Tilly. Craig Tilly was my year 11 physics teacher. He was not my favourite person for quite some time. For most of year 11, I didn't really like him because he was firm. He was all business. 
He was one of those uh, teachers that uh, had quite close-cropped, dark, curly hair and always wore his sleeves rolled down to the cuffs. Uh, very well-dressed, very prim. Um, he had that kind of face where if he shaved in the morning, he'd need another shave by lunchtime and it felt like his hair kind of exploded out of his cuffs. Um, he was a hairy man. But I came to really, really love him. I came to just love being, because I knew that when I arrived in physics up on the fifth floor, I knew that even though it was going to be hard and we'd have cool stuff to do, he was actually, he wanted us to learn. He made it so that idiots who wanted to muck around in physics labs, me, were put in their place and made to work and appreciate the stuff that was going on. He was one of the guys that made me want to become a teacher. I worked as a teacher before I worked at church. He was clearly a man in authority. His character was, you know, he liked to joke, but he didn't really smile till Easter because he knew that you can always loosen up your classroom discipline, but you can't tighten it up. He, He was compelling because he knew his stuff. He knew it really well. He could teach it clearly. And he made me want to be like him. I ended up training to be a maths teacher um, and then worked as a primary school teacher. So it didn't quite work. But um, When we read about Jesus in Mark, he's, he speaks with authority. Uh, the, the passage we're looking at tonight from the second half of chapter 12 is all about Jesus speaking to a bunch of different groups of people. Pharisees. Sadducees, teachers of the law, the crowd, and then finally talking about a widow. The, the overarching question that it raises is, who's in authority? Each of these crews of people assume that they are in authority over Jesus. But as we'll see, the reality is in fact reversed, that Jesus is authoritative. He speaks with authority because he is the Christ, God's appointed king. Now, you may not believe that. That's all right. That's why this is open for inspection. We're going to look at these groups. Uh, Just before we look at them, I want you to flick over to Mark 15, verse 1. Mark 15, verse 1. It's important to see where Mark is going with this. The the different groups that he announces that that Jesus is about to address include... Chapter 15, verse 1, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. Now, a little bit of Israeli background. That's all I wanted from chapter 15. We're back in chapter 12. The Sanhedrin is made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law. Uh, The Pharisees believe the whole Old Testament, the whole of Genesis to Malachi. The law, the prophets, the writings. Uh, That is God's revealed word to his people. The Sadducees, also heavy-duty religious dudes, they actually only believe in the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books, the Torah, written by Moses, that was their heartland. And because in those five books they didn't think that the resurrection was mentioned, they didn't believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. And the teachers of the law were those who unsurprisingly, taught the law in the temples. Three key groups, they made up the Sanhedrin. And so as Jesus works through these categories, you see him addressing the people who will ultimately sentence him to death. 
There's an authority issue at hand. So let's look at them. Pharisees, verse 13. Chapter 12, verse 13, bottom of page 1004. Let's think about the authority here. Notice that they set a trap for Jesus. They set a trap for him. Verse 14, they came to catch him in his words. Teacher. Now, there's about to be a joke here. Sometimes in the Bible, the jokes aren't apparent. You have to work up to them. So just to give you a run-up, look back to verse 12. This is the same crew that Jesus is talking to. They're looking for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew he had spoken the parable of the vineyard against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left Jesus and went away. They're afraid of the crowd. They're swayed by the opinion of people. Now look at the way they address Jesus. Are you ready for the comedy here? They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Blah, blah, blah. It's the complete opposite to them. They've just shown a lack of integrity. They've just shown that they're swayed by people. And yet here they come to Jesus with trappity trap trap. Now, you got a coin? I've got a dollar. It's got a lady on one side and kangaroos on the other. Here's a denarius. Uh, this is what it looks like. It was about a day's wage, the Tiberius Caesar denarius. Uh, you had to pay it each year when the census was counted. As all the people were counted, if you existed, you had to pay a tax to the Roman government. And this was it. Roman currency with the Roman emperor on it. And so Jesus has two choices. Well, two options, one choice. What's he going to say? If he says, yes, we should pay the tax, the people will go, pay taxes to Caesar. Boo! But if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, then he's breaking the law. Quick, let's arrest him. So it's bad, bad, bad for Jesus. What's he going to do? Now, it's easy as we read Jesus' words here to just read the first half of the sentence. Let's read the first half. What does Jesus say? Verse 17. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. A.K.A. pay the tax. Now, just as an aside, you should pay tax. It's good for us to pay tax, like hospitals, roads, all good things. As part of being uh, Christian people, it's right for us to obey the authorities that God has put in place. Pay your taxes. I'm not saying that you don't. I'm just saying it's right for us and good for us to do this. It's actually modelled for us in Jesus, that he submits himself to the authorities that God, his Father, has established. It's not always easy. Jesus models that as well. But it's right for us to submit to the authorities that God has put in place, even when it comes at a cost. Pay tax. But that's not the point. The point is the second half. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, verse 17, and to God what is God's. Dom, dom, dom. It's enigmatic Jesus. What does he mean? You've got to ask yourself, this is Mark's way of stirring your brain into asking yourself, what is God's? We know what Caesar's is. One denarius. What is God's? What of you and all that you have belongs to God? That's the question Mark is asking you. It's the question Jesus is asking you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Through Jesus, in 
John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Nothing was made without him. All that you are, all that you have, belongs to God. Give to God's what is God. Give to God what is God's. You and me, we are creatures. It's very, very tempting as we go through each day, completely in control of our lives, that is, able to make decisions and decide what to do, to think that we are in authority over our lives. But that is patently not true. Stuff is going to happen today, tomorrow, this week, this year, that you have no control over. You are not the creator. You are not the authority. You are a creature. And so you belong to the creator. Without the doctrine of creation, by the way, sin makes no sense at all. If God is not the creator, there's no such thing as sin because what right does God have over you? And if there's no sin, then there's no need for the good news, which is forgiveness of sin in Jesus. But God is the creator. And it's right for God's people not just to give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, but to give to God what is God's. Jesus speaks with authority and they were amazed at him. I don't think just because he'd confounded the Pharisees. I think they're amazed as well because they're challenged to think about what they've given to God. Then the Sadducees, stage 2, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Now, you've got to remember, this only works as comedy if you don't believe there's a resurrection. Okay? So if people don't rise from the dead, their question is premised on the idea that rising from the dead is a dumb idea. Because look what Moses promised. Look what Moses ordered. Now, just to put that in Old Testament perspective... When God gave his people a land, the promised land, the rest in Canaan that was the foreshadow of the new creation, the the heavenly rest, the 12 tribes each had a a bit of land, except for the Levites who were kept up by everyone else's taxes. That's why you should pay your tax. They each had a bit of land and it was hereditary. And so if you didn't have children, then you got no land essentially for your, your descendants to live in. So it's really important that you had kids. That's kind of the premise to this story. It's meant to be a little bit comedic. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the the woman died too. And then their question, try to show that Jesus is a fool at the resurrection. (laughs) At the resurrection, because there isn't one, because it's a dumb idea, because it's not in the five books of Moses. Whose wife will she be? They're sitting in judgment over Jesus. They're being narky. They're being snide. And there's a time for Jesus to be mild and to not speak in response to those in authority, but that time is not now. Look at the tone of Jesus' response, verse 24. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? It's like telling a physicist, have you never heard of Newton? It's saying to the Pharisees, saying to the Sadducees, the ones who care just about the scriptures and the power of God, have you no idea what you are talking about? 
And then Jesus proves his case from the very scriptures that they believe in. Verse 26, have you not read in the book of Moses? Who is the God of the Old Testament? Who is the God of the scriptures? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That famous triumvirate, father, son and grandson, to whom came the great promises of God that he would gather for himself a people and give them land, descendants, blessing and be a blessing to all the nations. The point that Jesus is making is those guys are alive because there is a resurrection. Verse 27, that's his conclusion. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And in case you didn't get it, Jesus concludes, you are badly mistaken. I find it hard to believe in the resurrection because I've never met anyone raised from the dead. Uh, But when we hear Jesus' words, we are reminded that he is an expert on this matter. See, Jesus knows about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because Jesus was with God in the beginning. In John 8, 58, in a similar argument, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus calling himself God, saying that I, I know Abraham. Not just know about him, but Jesus pre-existed. Jesus is the resurrection. Sometimes Christians are accused of uh, having a faith which is all pie in the sky when you die. That is that we just put up with terrible things in the here and now because there's hope in heaven. There's some truth to that, in that Christians believe in a Jesus who really rose from the dead. In fact, if you don't believe that, you should chuck in your faith. 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very clear that if Christ has not been raised, Christianity is rubbish. It's a waste of time. It's full of lies. But I am convinced from the realities of history, as we can understand them clearly, that Jesus really rose from the dead, not as a ghost, not as a spectre, but as a physical person. And because of him, we are not badly mistaken in believing in a resurrection. What good is that for you to believe in a resurrection? Well, partly it means that when you die, it's not the end. It means that there is more to life than just this here and now. That means that we can invest in things which go into the future, into eternity. Those things are people. People are eternal because we are made in the image of the eternal God. What matters most to the creator? His creatures made in his image. You are badly mistaken if you do not have a view of the world that includes a resurrection because God is the God of the living. This is the power of God. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. The power of God is to raise the dead, isn't it? Only God can raise the dead. And this is your story if you were a Christian. If your faith is in Jesus, you are a person who used to be 
in one way, dead, dead to God, facing death, facing the just punishment for our rejection of our creator. But we've been made alive because of Jesus in this ridiculous act of mercy, ridiculous in that you didn't earn it at all. This is the power of God, that he can be both just and the one who forgives sin. That's the wonder of the cross. Are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? The Sadducees get it in the neck. They are badly mistaken. Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law. Have a look down in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law heard them debating, and this guy's different because he doesn't actually come with a trap. He's, he's commended by Jesus. You look down to the end of the story, verse 34. Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The, guy, the guy's in a good place. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't say, you've got it completely right. Let's have a look at the teacher of the law. Thinking about authority, you'll notice that this man as well, as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, sits in authority over Jesus. Look at the way that he speaks to Jesus. Noticing that Jesus had given the Sadducees a good answer, he asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which one is the most important? It's a theological test. Fun, fun, fun. Which one's the most important commandment? Now, the Old Testament's full of commandments. It's actually a legitimate question. What is the most important commandment? Are the ones about mould really important? Or are the ones about sacrifice really important? The most important one, answered Jesus, verse 29, is this. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, what a good Israelite was meant to recite every morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Notice that Jesus goes further than the question. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Check the response. Well said, teacher. Well said. He's given Jesus the theological tick of approval. You can see how the system has been turned on its head. The man responded, you're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. This is thick with irony, right? This guy's commending Jesus on his theology. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's significant because they're standing in the temple where all the sacrifices happen. The guy's got it right that religion is not for show, but about responding to the great love of God by loving God and loving others as one ongoing way of life. A love of God's creatures based on knowing what the creator has done. Love God and love your neighbour. When Jesus saw that the man answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean? What's the guy commended for and what's he missing? Jesus, notice in verse 34, Jesus says he has answered wisely. The guy's in a good place compared to some of his compatriots. In a moment, Jesus is going to say, watch out for the teachers of the law because they're all show. They're all surface level religion. But at this point, this guy is commended because he's, he's seen what's important. That God is not about putting on a religious show, burnt offerings and sacrifices. God is about relationship. 
and this is just worth pausing and reflecting on, do you realise that God is personal? God in himself is relationship, Father, Son and Spirit. The reason why it's perfectly normal and right for us to yearn for healthy relationships is because we are made in the image of a God who is relationship. Love the Lord your God with all of who you have been made in the image of God. Love him and love his creatures. This is a right response to our creator. It's relational. It's a wise response. It acknowledges that Religion is, yes, to do with God, loving God, but it, that love of God bears fruit in human relationships. Having been forgiven, we can forgive, even those who do not forgive us. Having been shown unlimited generosity as God sacrifices his son for us, we can afford to give everything in service of others, knowing that God has already met our needs. Love of God and love of neighbour are two separate things. They're one response to the relational God who's given everything as the first mover. But he has kind of missed the point because he hasn't understood who he's talking to. You're not far from the kingdom of God. The guy's like, where is it? If it's not the temple, because that's been up in his head. Jesus is the king. You're not far from the kingdom of God. It's kind of like... If I'm talking to you after church and I say, oh, you're not far from Roger. I'm not actually talking about the other Roger. That's confusing here. But this guy's not far from the kingdom of God because he just has to see who he's talking to. Can, can you see who's speaking here? Do you know Jesus? Can you see him for who he is? Jesus is the ultimate authority because he sits at God's right hand. That's the point that verse 35 and following makes. Jesus is the ultimate authority because he sits at God's right hand. It's the quote from Psalm 110 in verse 36. David, the greatest king in the Old Testament, the one who wanted to build a temple for God, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You meant to ask yourself, who is God calling my Lord here? Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The English is confusing because it's the Lord said to my Lord. There's two different Hebrew words. It's very clear that the first one is God and the Lord is a, another human king. Jesus is that king. That's the point that's being made here. The teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David and yet David calls him Lord. Who's the great king? Who's the Christ? Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the ultimate authority. He sits at God's right hand. This is why when Jesus faces Jerusalem, he doesn't just go to suffer, be rejected and die, but to rise. Because the king who has the power of God is raised to God's right hand. The Christ defeats death. The Christ rules with authority. The Christ speaks authoritatively to all of God's creation. And he puts his enemies under his feet. See the last half of verse 37? The large crowd listened to Jesus with delight. Isn't that a beautiful picture of right response to Jesus? I'm not sure whether they're delighted just because the officials are getting it in the neck from Jesus or because they've grasped who he is. 
This is the Christ. Mark's full of people who get it but don't quite get it all. The large crowd listened to him with delight and Jesus then draws this comparison between religion for show and religion from the heart. That's how this finishes up. What's the response to the authoritative Jesus? Well, you can put on a show or you can love God from the heart. Verse 38, Jesus said, Watch out for teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses. I don't think he means he actually eats the houses. It means they take their money. They devour widows' houses for a show and make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. So you can only say that if you are in authority. If you sit at the right hand of God and judge, and that's Jesus. Look at the contrast to this abuse of authority. Look at the contrast, verse, 30, verse 41. Jesus sits down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money in the temple treasury. You meant, to, you meant to catch this scene in the temple. All sorts of people, rich and poor, everyone in God's family comes. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came in and put in her two cents. What do you see? Jesus, calling his disciples to him, says, I tell you the truth. Amen, he says. I tell you the truth. Speaking with authority, this poor widow put more in the treasury than all the others. Um, no, she didn't, Jesus. Verse 44 explains what he means. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. The widow is the, the last, at this point, in a, in a string of people who've responded well to Jesus who've got the idea that following God means giving up everything and trusting him. In Mark's gospel, the first ones to do it were the disciples. They were at work fishing, and Jesus said, come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they followed Jesus. They left everything. Later on they go, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. The widow is one of those people who models for us what it is to respond rightly to Jesus, to respond rightly to God. Out of her heart, she knows that she can give all she has to God because God will meet her needs. Not because she's got a Centrelink check coming. didn't exist in Israel. She knew that, quite rightly, God will meet her needs. She might have even... Well, she's, she's got the Lord's Prayer without even knowing it. Give us today our daily bread, just like Israel received in the desert, exactly what they needed for the day from God. We're meant to ask ourselves, are we more like the religious dudes putting on a show, or are we more like the widow who's responding to God from the heart by giving everything we have? What are you holding back from giving to God? It's not just a question of money here, because it's at the end of a section about authority. I think what Mark is t- 
twisting into our hearts, getting into our brains, is the idea that when Jesus speaks, we get to respond to his words. When God speaks to us, we can hear his words and submit ourselves to his authority, or we can set ourselves up as an alternate authority. Now, that's what it is whenever we hear anyone speak. When you read the paper, you're like, eh, going to ignore that. It's a weather prediction. I'm just going to ignore it. But Jesus' words matter. Jesus' words are the words that spun creation into being. What parts of your life have you heard Jesus' call of authority and just thought, that's too hard for me. I don't trust God to provide for me in that bit. What part of your life have you heard Jesus' call to obedience and just thought, I couldn't possibly do that? I think it's normal to feel that way, by the way. Following Jesus, living wholeheartedly for him, feels impossible. And it's why it's great that Jesus himself models the right attitude in each of these sections. Can I just show it to you as we go back from the beginning just quickly? Jesus models the fact that he's the God who is living. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the one who has given to God what is God's. Jesus is the one who's given up everything, being at God's own right hand and making himself nothing. Jesus has given up everything. He's given to God what is God's. He's modelled for us what it is for us to trust God at his word. Jesus has shown us what it is to love God and love neighbour in one complete, morally unified life. Jesus has shown us what it is to give everything he has. Which is a relief because we can't possibly do that perfectly. And so we rest in Jesus' complete provision of a way to God, Jesus' complete sacrifice. See, when we respond to God, we don't earn our way. We don't earn God's approval by obedience in enough bits of our lives to get God's tick of approval. No, we're freed up to live under the good authority of Jesus. It's tempting to think, isn't it, that if I say, what bit of your life are you not putting Jesus into practice? To just feel guilty about it. There's a place for guilt when it moves us to obedience. Rest in God's forgiveness in Christ. Hear Jesus' good, authoritative word. This is how to live well. Trust God that when you give everything to him, it works. Because the gospel is the power of God. Because there is a resurrection. Jesus embodies this attitude of wholeheartedly giving everything to God. And calls us to follow in his footsteps. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you again that uh, you speak good words to us. Now we know that by nature, as your creatures, we don't, uh, we don't respond to your authority the, r- the right way all the time. And so, Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that's found in Jesus. Uh, we thank you for his perfect example for us of what it is to love you and love his neighbours. Uh, we thank you that you demonstrated your love for us and sending him as a sacrifice for sin while we were your enemies. 
Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would give us insight into our own hearts and minds, that we might see where we fail to live according to your word. Uh, We pray that you would help us to live rightly as your people, to love you and to love our neighbours deeply from the heart. Uh, We can only do this with your help, Lord. And we ask that by your spirit and by uh, the fellowship that comes from doing this together, uh, you might empower us to live for you in every way, confident that Christ has gone before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.